From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The merger of the Office of Personnel Management into the General Services Administration is officially off tonight. Acting OPM Director Michael Regas writes the agency is, quote, no longer devoting time and energy to the merger. Federal News Network reports Regas's memo to the OPM workforce says the administration will focus on how the agency will continue on its own. CSRA is the winner of the Defense Department's DOS contract again. The General Services Administration made the second award Friday after two protests from Perspecta. FedScoop reports the 10-year deal is worth up to $4.4 billion. That's less than the $7.6 billion ceiling on the first award. GSA is standing up the 10th Center of Excellence at the Library of Congress. The effort will modernize the library's call center capabilities. FedScoop reports the partnership will center its work on the library's copyright office. The forthcoming Polaris contract is the second major vehicle to include the Defense Department's cybersecurity maturity model certification requirements. The General Services Administration says it's because the Pentagon is one of its biggest customers. Jim Williams is partner at Shambach and Williams Consulting, former acting administrator of the General Services Administration. Jim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Are these isolated instances for a particular reason, do you think, these, inclu these uh, inclusions of the CMMC standards? Or do you think this is the beginning of a propagation of these standards across the government, even the civilian side? I think it's the latter, Francis. I think GSA has done a great job, Emily Murphy in particular, in establishing partnerships with DOD, uh, with Ellen Lord and with Lisa Hirschman, the chief management officer. What I think is they're trying to put together vehicles that really satisfy the Department of Defense's needs. I think they see this train as being quickly as going to apply to all civilian agencies. And I, I think this is a train that everybody better get on board because it's not going to be stopped. What does that mean for vendors that thought, well, we don't sell to the Defense Department, we just sell in the civilian agencies, so CMMC is not a big deal to us? That's not the case, really, is it, Jim? No, I don't think so. I think all of the civilian agencies looking at their need to protect data are going to be looking at CMMC as yet another uh, tool in the toolbox, a certification that will give them some risk assurance that their data will be protected. And I think if you look at civilian agencies, certainly they think of their data you know, as the, the very lifeblood of their agencies, that which must be protected. Are there contracts or types of contracts where it wouldn't make sense for CMMC requirements to be included? Or could this wind up everywhere at some point in time in a, within a couple of years or at some point in the future? Well, I think there will be contracts that it won't apply to. If you have lawn mowing services, you, you don't need that. But I think more and more as IT and data is a part of everything we do, it's in, you know, those kind of security requirements are in almost all federal contracts. I think soon you're going to be seeing this as this is another barrier, a hurdle that you have to get over if you really want to play in the federal marketplace. So I think, unfortunately, large, small, all companies have to pay attention to this now. You mentioned the partnership that's developed, that's grown over the last number of years between GSA and the Defense Department. That wasn't the case for a long time. There was a, there was a long period of time, wasn't there, where DOD looked on GSA as at least not its partner 
and in some cases worse than that. What do you think has driven that, Jim? Well, I think uh, the category management and DOD uh, agreeing with OMB and category management, and really I'll give credit to GSA. I mean, understanding, and when I was there, you know, the Federal Acquisition Service, over 40 billion of their 55 billion they did every year was really uh, by the Defense Department. So really understanding it, they are the biggest customer and you have to work in conjunction with them to make sure whatever you're doing meets their requirements. And I think GSA, what's Astro, Polaris, uh, 8A Stars, they've been doing a great job. And again, give credit at the top for the relationships that they built at the top that have been flowing down. One of the other changes that's happening at your former agency is the Section 876 authority pushing pricing down to the task order level. What are you watching there as that develops, Jim? Well, I think, we, you know, obviously watching Astro and, and maybe Polaris, but also as GSA is trying to apply this to the schedules program. And that's a, a much bigger ball of wax to attack. I think it is certainly appropriate for many of the schedules, particularly the IT services, the professional services. And I think GSA is going about that in the right manner, going through the notice of proposed rulemaking, soliciting public comment on it, and really taking a measured approach to applying 876, which means not looking at contracts at the master contract level, but really looking at it at the task order level where there's real competition. We just have a couple of minutes left, Jim, and we have not talked about the election process much on this program, and I'm not really brokenhearted about that, but not many people know that there is a role for GSA in the election and the transition, um, the actual election of the president, and you have personal experience with that, don't you? Well, I do. As acting administrator, you know, under the Presidential Transition Act of 1963, GSA has a leading role in presidential transition. One of the roles of the GSA administrator is to actually choose and designate an apparent successful winner of the election. That is so that you can maximize the time between the date of the election and inauguration on January 20th. You don't know the official winner until the Electoral College votes in December, so you want to try and pick an apparent winner as soon as possible. On the night that I did it back in 2008, long story short, we still had about 50 people working at 11 o'clock at night, and I had decided that uh, I knew who the apparent successful winner was, and I uh, had we had three uh, documents assigned, letter to the winner, letter to the unsuccessful, and letter to our CFO, turning over the funds to the winner. And when I sat down to sign it, uh, first of all, all the, the letterhead was wrong, so the, a young lady went back and changed that. And then uh, when she came back, put all three in front of me, and people crowded around. There were pens for each one, and they wanted to take my picture, I guess. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I can't sign this. And they said, well, why not? I said, well, all three of these have me picking John McCain. And the young lady was quite embarrassed. She ran over, grabbed the papers, tore them up, and came back about 10 minutes later. And then I did sign it and designate uh, Barack Obama as the official apparent winner of the election. And, th of and that that team was in GSA at 7:15 the day after the election. The Obama team. 30 seconds left, Jim. There's so many things that go on in government that people aren't aware of, and it's great to hear that story again. Thanks very much for coming on, my friend. Thank you, Francis. My pleasure. Coming next, your agency might need a new office for a new executive. Straight ahead on Government Matters, focusing on the customer at the highest level of your department.
back, the newest executive at each federal agency could be the customer experience officer. Matt Lear of the Office of American Innovation at the White House says the job could be similar to the chief data officer job structurally. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at the Boston Consulting Group, former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Danny, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the benefit of having an executive do this job rather than just strengthening customer experience all across an agency and building those concepts into processes? Well, I mean, one of the main reasons you might create a, a chief exec, a chief officer around this discipline is that you have one person that you can go to that's accountable. Someone who goes to bed at night thinking about it and wakes up in the morning thinking about how do we improve customer experience? Whereas if you try to spread it across the organization, you're just adding it to the plate of a, of a lot of different responsibilities those individuals already have. Now, obviously on the other side of this is you're creating more bureaucracy and increasing the number of uh, chief officers you have. And there's a downside of that as well. So you have to figure out where the biggest priorities are for you to add these types of positions in the government. Uh, Matt Lear, as I mentioned a moment ago, said uh, that this, these positions should not be vaporware. Talked about this pretty extensively at the executive leadership conference that ACT IAC did virtually last week. My view is that if we create positions, we need to make sure they're not just vaporware. How do you evaluate candidates for these jobs to make sure that they're really that they're that they're really doing something? They're really making an impact. Well, I mean, first of all, you have to make sure that the organization is ready to embrace this role. So I start with with role clarity, that everyone in the organization knows what the mission and remit of a new chief officer is around customer experience or around anything else. You know, we've seen the advent of chief data officers and uh, chief risk officers and you know, yeah, yes, you have to get the right person with the right experience set who can bring in um, uh, experiences in other organizations and in other industries and successfully launching these types of efforts. But I think, you know, if you don't have uh, the organization clearly understanding why this role is being created, what its remit is, and that it does have the authorities of the leader of the agency to carry out that remit, you know, you're really starting uh, not in a great place, and it's likely that the organization won't won't embrace what's being what's uh, what they're trying to do here. Every agency does surveys of its customers internally and externally. The biggest internal survey, I guess, is the FEVs. But how do you measure the success of a CXO? Is it just the customers, especially the external customers? Um, is it just the surveys that you get back from them after a period of time, or is there another way to judge whether a CXO is successful? Well, that's why you, you have to establish that clear mission and what are they trying to achieve, and you have to do it in a time-based way. What is the What do we want stood up in the first three months, the first six months, the first nine months? And then if you're talking about a customer experience officer, then you want to establish a baseline for what the uh, how you're measuring um, the customer satisfaction of your agency and how external stakeholders are experiencing. So it may be that right now you don't have a strong measurement. So the first uh, milestone for the 
for the for the new uh, chief is to establish a strong measurement program. Then you got to establish a baseline, and you got to measure it over time. Um, and so these things are not something that happens overnight. Now, if you're ahead of the curve and you already have a strong measurement program, um, maybe you're bringing in this new uh, C-suite officer to really kind of catalyze some innovation to really try to understand what the customers need and really try to get better performance on those metrics. But each organization is going to be in a different point of maturity. And so the new chief executive that comes in is really going to have to figure out where are we on that maturity curve and the success of that individual and the new organization they're standing up will be what is the next milestone on that maturity curve that we need to achieve. All right, you alluded to something at the beginning of this conversation that I noticed right away when I read about this, and that is at what point do we have too many C-suite officers, Danny? Do we have too yeah. many people going in different directions or with different missions that have to fit into a mosaic across an agency? Yeah, I mean, there is a point at which you're diluting the effectiveness, um, and I think it's interesting. There's a, there's a way to look at this agency by agency and basically saying, look, we're not going to create a new C-suite position across every agency in government, but we're going to look at different agencies and figure out what makes the most sense for that agency. Should they embed it within existing responsibilities? Like, for example, should this be a responsibility of the chief information officer or the chief financial officer so that we're capitalizing on an existing C-suite organization? Or... Do we actually need for this particular organization a whole new office to focus on it? And it really, it's gonna depend on the organization. So my standpoint would be if I was at OMB or the White House at this point, I would ask each agency to come back and say, what's the best way to achieve the objective? Is it to embed it into your existing organizational structure or is there benefit in creating a new position just dedicated to this? and really not have a one-size-fits-all, but figure it out across agency. Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always. My pleasure, Francis. Up next, dealing with the bad guys in the gray area. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the danger to deal with and the new concepts to deal with them. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Cyber attacks are one of several gray zone warfare tactics the United States could face in coming years. Personalized deterrence is one strategy the U.S. can implement to keep gray zone attacks at bay. Elizabeth Braw is visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She's writing about gray zone attacks in Defense One. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You cite in your piece several examples of gray zone threats, South China Sea and, and China's activities there, uh, malware, election misinformation. What does the entire landscape of the gray zone uh, threat look like? Well, thank you for having me. So uh, gray zone aggression is so incredibly attractive because it, it's you can do whatever you come up with uh, below the threshold of, of armed violence or, or armed forces violence. So that means that you can be incredibly uh, imaginative and, and inventive. And that's what China did in the in the South China Sea, where it started building uh, artificial islands, but it didn't say that that's what it was doing. It just did a little bit at the time. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, uh, there were new islands that 
there and there was really nothing the international community could do about it then we have disinformation we have cyber attacks we have um uh, cyber espionage intellectual property theft uh, subversive business practices so the gamut and it's very hard to figure out who is supposed to to do something about this and 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 to well to counter it and to deter it you write, you also cite the example of the poisoning of the Russian spy to introduce your piece, and you write something that is has been at the core of everything that we've discussed on this program, I think, about the national defense strategy and the way that we deal with adversaries, and that is, you write it very eloquently, a liberal democracy is bound by more rules than authoritarian countries. What does that say about the way that we approach these kinds of threats? So that is the challenge that we have, that our adversaries, um, meaning uh, authoritarian countries that, that engage in, in this form of aggression against us, don't feel uh, bound by the same rules that we do. So we, for example, we wouldn't uh, poison our former spies in, in a different country, at least I hope we wouldn't, um, and we wouldn't engage in uh, hacking of another country's election infrastructure and we wouldn't hack another country's um, uh, hospitals for example but so what do we do if other countries do that to us and I think the point is that we just have to realize that that's happening and signal to our adversaries that we won't do that in return well we won't need to signal that because uh, they know that we won't do it in return but we'll signal that we can do other things in return that are uh, that, that, that are acceptable in a liberal democracy. The formal term for that is personalized deterrence, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. I like your informal term for it much better, the horse's head in the bed approach. What does that mean? Well, so uh, I think we have all watched The Godfather, and there is that famous scene uh, where Walt wakes up and uh, he finds in his bed next to him the the, uh, the, the, the severed head of his beloved horse. And so uh, he hasn't been harmed personally, obviously, but the message to him is that if you don't do as we like, there will be consequences. And I'm not saying the U.S. or any other democracy should engage in it should engage in in in, in uh, media tactics. Sorry, mafia tactics. But what they should do is signal to those who wish us harm and who do us harm that there will be consequences to them personally. And we don't need to to tell them what those consequences will be. It's enough to let them guess um, what might happen to them, and that will, I think. Um, uh, lead them to conclude that it might be better not to engage in, in, in uh, grace and aggression against us. You give us the good news toward the end of this piece, Elizabeth. You write, Western countries also have a phenomenal advantage. What is that advantage? Well, it's that we can be innovative too. So they are innovative. They uh, attack whatever they come across. And, and look at the damage that Russia has done to U.S. elections. Uh, Americans, the majority of Americans, believe that um, that U.S. elections are being um, are being harmed by Russia. And um, uh, and uh, sort of half of the population believes that ele American elections are not safe. So. Um, that's something that where we can be equally imaginative, not in trying to to, to influence anybody else's elections, but in in um, for example, um, releasing publicly available information about those who um, who engage in, in, in aggression against us. So lots of foreign leaders own property in our countries. They have bank accounts in our countries. Their children go to university in our countries. We can release that information. And that's uh, that's no, not secret information, but it is information that, if made available to a wider public, would really um, 
uh, embarrass those officials and cause them to think twice. Not just officials, but uh, lower level people as well, including those who, um, uh, well, not just elected leaders, but but uh, other officials as well. So that's one level of personalized deterrence. The other level of personalized deterrence is that we can issue visa bans, and that's already happening a bit. So if you're a, a sort of a low-level hacker operating on behalf of a foreign government, you face uh, the prospect of not being able to visit Disneyland or Paris, London, whatever you want to, to visit here in the West. I think that's a, a, a pretty big um, uh, incentive for them not to engage in aggression against us. We have less than a minute left. What's your sense of why we've chosen uh, as a nation to not release that information so far? Well, I think because we are so used to um, engaging in deterrence against countries. So we say, if you attack our country, we'll attack back with uh, with our armed forces and, and if need be with nuclear weapons. We're not used to thinking creatively, but our adversaries are very good at thinking creatively and that's where we have to follow their lead. And, and so uh, all that's needed is a little bit of creative thinking. Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. Up next, a special look at the era of cloud sponsored by Dell and the Government Matters Thought Leadership Network. If you're watching on the American Forces Network, you can watch the era of cloud on demand at govmatters.tv. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.